this episode of AvTalk. Last week's rollout of the C-band 5G in the U.S. wasn't a total disaster, but it is still affecting some flights. And the dispute between Airbus and Qatar Airways escalates as Airbus cancels Qatar's order for A321neos. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Nurbinowitz. How are you, Ian? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you? Good. I booked a flight the other day uh, because I was getting itchy to go somewhere, anywhere, literally anywhere at this point since uh, my Japan trip in February, March is not going to happen. So I've got that going for me, which is nice. Where are you going? I'm going to go to San Diego because it's warm and I haven't been there and I can fly an A330 there for funsies. Sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah. As we've discussed many times before, we, we love a good domestic wide body flight. I love a good domestic wide body flight. Don't get me wrong. And and if you can do it on the 330, I assume this is Delta. Delta 330, 200 out. And then on the way back, a little less exciting, but still moderately exciting, a 75 Seven two hundred internationally configured aircraft, so very fancy Ooh. stuff. That is fancy. That is much fancier than than anything I have planned, which is basically just staying warm. Well, that, yeah, it's Chicago. Still, I mean, winter. It's a bit chilly today. Not as easy as you would think. It's a bit chilly today, and I'm sitting here in my basement. You know, bundled. I'm bundled indoors. At least it's quiet. It is quiet, but it has not been quiet this week. We have a quite the rundown for this show. We've got more 5G shenanigans. Mom and dad are fighting, and who knows what's happening there. We've got aircraft piracy charges to talk about, and a guy who survived the nose wheel well of a 747. And that's just the first couple of things we're going to talk about. So let's dive in. Yeah, it has not been a quiet week. It has not. So last Wednesday when we recorded, the C-band 5G rollout in the US had begun. Things were still much more up in the air, so to speak, than they are this week or not. It turned out to not be the end of the world that the airlines and FAA were predicting, but it did cause some headaches. And still is causing some headaches. And still is causing some headaches. Yeah. So, I mean, as far as passenger, let's start with the passenger experience here. As far as passengers are concerned, some flights were canceled, especially some regional flights in airports or two airports that had poor weather over the past week. Some flights were outright canceled, especially poor pain field with Alaska Horizons, or not Horizons, SkyWest's E-175s up in uh, north of Seattle. They weren't able to operate due to fog for days, I think. So that sucked. But that situation, thankfully, looks like it's on the mend simply because the fog is going away and more aircraft are being approved. But there were sporadic reports of flights being canceled, delayed, or diverted due to the C-band 5G. Yeah. So at the time we recorded last week, I think it was 62% of the US commercial fleet had received 
a clearance by the FAA, either the altimeters were fine or there was an alternative method of compliance that enabled the aircraft to operate normally. That went up to 78%, I think, by the end of the week, by the time the podcast Just came a day out, later. Been up to, to 78%. Yeah, of course, because we recorded and that's what spurred the change. And now we're up to 90%. So we've got models with one of 20 cleared altimeters. Include all Boeing 717, 737, 7456, 777, and 787. Notably absent the 727, of which there, I think, are zero left flying in the US. No, that's not right. There's a couple. Uh, there's, there's, there's a, a couple. I'm sure, there's a couple, but I don't think we need to be concerned with that right now. No, no, I think we'll be okay. The MD-10 and 11 Which helping are out old uh, aircraft, but there are many, many of those. They're so. still flying. I mean, that, that's how you get your packages a lot of the times. Airbus A300, 310, A220, which is the important one that, that was missing. That was the last one that was missing for a long time. The 320, 321, 330, 40, 50, and 80. The all-important Embraer. 120. Ah, for all. Is, how uh, many of those are left in commercial operation <laughs> in the US? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The E170, E190, both series. So that includes the E170, E175, E190, E195, CL600, CRJ, tur- regional jets, Dash 8 turboprops, and ATR turboprops. So most everything is now covered and it's still. I don't know what the word I want, the polite word I want to use, but it it's still something. It's something. We're also still missing the mighty Embraer E-145s. So those, those have not been included with the rest of the Embraers just yet. Somebody pointed out that the A318 is missing, though I assume that's just because there simply aren't any in the US commercial fleet anymore. I can't think Yeah, of I mean, the only A318 that would fly in the US would have to be a, like an ACJ or something like that. Yeah, so possible, but it's not a part of the US commercial fleet. Right. So yeah, most aircraft you'll encounter on commercial airlines, they are good and cleared to go, though we're not completely there just yet, especially with those E145s are an outstanding aircraft since there are a fair good number of those yep. day to day. And there's been a couple, if not cancellations or I guess it counts as a delay, but there have been some hiccups and some interesting things that happened. And Jason, you were following one of these in Florida with, uh, what was it, E-170s? Yeah. I spotted this on, uh, of all places, airliners.net, which is someplace I don't like to spend much time. But KC Aviator provided a very good explanation of why flights from Key West down in Florida, the very, very southern tip of Florida, aren't able to fly to New York, either Newark or LaGuardia, nonstop, even though it's typically fine. They may have to take a payload restriction because it's quite a long flight and a short runway there. But there's this odd quirk with the E-175 that basically, I'll just read it verbatim, the E-175 has logic that inhibits certain ECAS messages during different phases of flights. And ECAS messages are basically prompts that tell the pilots that something has gone wrong, there's some system error of some sort. One of the phases of flights is from 80 knots to 400 feet above ground level, a critical phase of flight. During that period of flight, many ECAS messages are inhibited during that time so the crews aren't distracted by something trivial. You know, when when you're first pulling off the ground, you don't want random trivial messages about something like 
breaks not working because there's nothing you can do about it at that point. Where 5G comes into play is that Embraer has determined that 5G could cause radio altimeter interference in certain circumstances and therefore making the aircraft think it's above 400 feet AGL and then it would not inhibit those ECAST messages would be not exactly detrimental to the aircraft, but it could be slightly distracting to the pilot. So in this particular case, there's now a takeoff weight penalty that accounts for the absolute worst case scenario. And these aircraft on this particular route are not able to basically take off with their maximum payload. So they're having to stop somewhere along the way, usually somewhere in Florida, Tampa, Miami. So it's a weird example of how this 5G situation, which really shouldn't have happened. It isn't a real issue. These aircraft aren't actually experiencing the issue, but because of this paperwork nonsense that they are not able to fly nonstop to New York, but it seems like as of today, that may have been cleared up because both United and Delta flights were able to. Oh, good. Good for them. And then there was the, uh, yeah, good for them. And then there was this, this thing that sent everybody into a tizzy yesterday for about, oh, 30 minutes, where the FAA issued an airworthiness directive or, or proposed an airworthiness directive for the Boeing 777s, all the 777s and the 747-8-8I and 8-8F that said the airplanes just can't land at airports where 5G interference could occur. And this, that's occurred, what the, that's this, this what came the airworthiness up directive days said. after they were cleared, supposedly cleared to operate in right. 5G areas. And so everyone was like, well, wait, what? So reporters reaching out to the FAA and to airlines, you know, how do we interpret this? What what is going on here? The FAA put out a statement yesterday, understandably, or saying, you know, seeking to allay people's fears and, and clear up some of the confusion. The airworthiness directive does not apply to landings at airports where the FAA has determined that the altimeters are safe and reliable in the 5G C band environment. It also doesn't apply to airports where 5G isn't deployed. Huh. What? I don't know. I mean, it's good to say like these are problems. We should be aware of them. But the way that the airworthiness directive was was worded, none of that caveat language was included in the airworthiness directive, which was, you know, not fun for a short while. But things are getting better. They weren't terrible to begin with. Annoying, frustrating that any of this happened, but here we are. And we'll see where we're at next week and well, see if we hit 100%. We know because the FAA has said in its Q&A that we might be in this position all over again come February 1st, which is just, I don't know to what degree we're going to go through this, but one of the questions they say is, are the AMOX, which is the alternate method of compliance you've issued, going to remain in effect indefinitely? The answer is no, period. The AMOX that were issued in advance of the rollout of 5G C-band will expire at the end of each month. That's because wireless carriers of towers that will go live at the beginning of each month as they build out their services. Next question. So AMOX will change every month. Yes, we're working with the wireless companies to get us tower activation information as soon as possible so we can plan ahead. I don't really understand this. For one thing, I thought there were buffer zones around many major airports, I think 50 airports, so this shouldn't be a problem to begin with. And if these aircraft aren't susceptible, or if the radio altimeter models are not susceptible to 5G C-band, why would that change every month depending on the rollout of the network? I, I don't really understand that. 
Maybe it's for the airports that aren't subject to a buffer. Possibly, but they haven't uh, said I mean, that. It, yeah, I mean, that's the only thing, thinking through it logically, which I know is a dangerous proposition given everything we know. That's what it says to me. But I guess we'll find out on the 1st of February. Yes, we will. I don't know uh, if that means a whole bunch of new C-band sites will go live on February 1st. Honestly, I hope so because so far the coverage is absolutely abysmal on the Verizon side. This is like an, a non-factor, at least here in New York City. The, the coverage map is all red, but I haven't seen service anywhere yet. So. I hope the data that Verizon and to a lesser extent AT&T is providing to the FAA is a whole lot more accurate than what it's releasing to the public, which is junk so far. I hope so too. <laughs> I mean, to we me. have no way to know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we'll see where we're at next week, which will be the beginning of the month. So hopefully things go smoothly there and we don't have to do this every 30 days because that would be just even dumber than it already is. Speaking, well, I don't know if I want to call it dumb. No, no, this one's fun. I don't know if fun's the right word, but For it us. is it's entertaining on the outside. So we've talked about the ongoing dispute between Airbus and Qatar Airways over the grounded A350s, that Qatar has 21 A350s that are grounded due to advanced paint degradation and possible damage to the underlying cage structure, the anti-lightning structure on the A350 fuselage. So the latest update here, because this has moved to court in London, last week, Airbus canceled Qatar's order for 50 A321neos. Wait, say that again? I had to because I think I texted you and you texted me, but you're like, wait, who canceled which order? Yeah, Because th <laughs> this is highly, highly unusual that an airframer would cancel an airline's order. Usually when you see this, the airline has gone or is going bankrupt or is about to, you know, to disappear, you know, just entirely. We're never going to fulfill these orders. So, you know, we're taking them off the books. This is different. This was Airbus saying, fine, we're done. The order is canceled. In response, Qatar Airways released a two-minute or so long video, and we'll link to that one in the show notes, of close-up views of the fuselages of some of its A350s that have suffered the advanced degradation of the paint and the underlying portions of the fuselage. I watched the video a few times, and I have to say, I didn't see anything that would lead me to the point where I agree with how upset Qatar Airways was or is. That someone was making the argument to me that Airbus wasn't taking Qatar seriously enough, so this is what this led to. I'm not sure I buy that argument, nor do I think that, that Airbus was necessarily not taking it seriously. So this is a very interesting ratcheting up of, of things that are happening. And then today, because we enjoy reading tea leaves, Qatar Airways tweets out a thank you to Boeing saying, you know, it, Seattle's our latest destination and thank you for being a strong partner to Boeing. This as 
rumors circulate that Qatar is close to being the launch customer for the 777X freighter. So all sorts of good, fun stuff. Yeah, I think I misinterpreted it at first because I don't remember which publication put out the tweet first about Airbus canceling the order, but it was a little vague, I think, and I may have misread it. But when the both of us reread it, wait, hold on. The Air Framer is canceling a major order of 50 of its most popular aircraft from one of its most prominent customers. I cannot recall of another time that has happened in, in recent history and probably hasn't happened. But that puts Qatar in a bit of an odd situation since these aircraft were due to be delivered starting this year, I think. So if they weren't already in production, that they're probably pretty close to that point. But last year, maybe in 2020, Qatar had also canceled its order for the 737 MAX, which it was originally putting in service with Air Italy, rest in peace, or maybe not peace, I don't care, nobody cares about Air Italy. But this puts Qatar in the situation where it has neither an order for the 7.3 Max or for the Neo. For It has no narrow bodies on order at this point. So that's not a great place for it to be. I mean, yes, but I don't think it's difficult to foresee Qatar ordering the 777X freighter and a good chunk of 737 Max in conjunction at the same time. I don't think we're a long way away from seeing that happen. Yeah, there's definitely a good deal of aircraft on the, the used market out there for it to scoop up, but 50 is a, a large number. And at this point, I would assume that they would have some a fleet plan pretty locked in and some routes that would require these aircraft, but pretty close in to have an order snatched out from your fingers like that. It'll be interesting to see how this develops because this is all going to play out in court filings in London, which is kind of the strange thing to me because usually these things are all very hush-hush until there until they're finalized. And then you kind of get backfill into how it all came to be. But this is going to be, I mean, for better or worse, probably worse, a very public fight yeah, because of the court filings. I mean, this came out pretty quickly. And then when publications went to Airbus for comment, they were pretty much like, yeah, we did that. <laughs> yeah, that oh, okay. We wrote what we wrote. I mean, that, I mean, I, I would typically expect for them to say like we don't comment on pending litigation or anything, but this isn't directly connected to the pending litigation. This is a, a sideburn. It seems like a sideburn. Oh, it's, it's something, all right. But I guess uh, we'll be back to it the next time they're in court. So, speaking of court, this was an interesting one. I did not see this one coming. A federal grand jury in New York indicted four Belarusian state officials with conspiracy to commit aircraft piracy. And this relates to the forced diversion of Ryanair Flight 4978 from Athens to Vilnius. It was diverted to Minsk in May of 2021, wherein the Belarusian government took one of their citizens off the aircraft and placed him under, I believe he's now under house arrest. Uh, he was a journalist of sorts, and the Belarusian government had problems with him. And so they diverted an aircraft. At least that's what the US government is claiming. So the charges were brought because there were US nationals on board the aircraft. Ah, um, that was going to be my next question. Yes. Well, how is there jurisdiction for this? Yes. So this is because there were US nationals on board the flight. So the US government 
is claiming that it has the ability to do this. What's interesting enough is that the charges were announced a few days after the ICAO fact-finding mission had been the report had been submitted to ICAO members, which is interesting. So it sounds like they either had this one ready to go or they were waiting to put this in front of the grand jury until that report was done. I don't know that for a fact, but that's what it sounds like happened. What's interesting is that this gives us the indictment gives us the first and granted, it's the US government's charging document, so it's their version of the events, but it gives us a bit more information about what happened and the order of operations that, that the Belarusian government went through to divert this flight. I mean, the you know, the thing was always, it's not the crime that they'll get you on, it's the cover up. The charging document lays out the fact that they started to cover the thing up as soon as they had done it. And at no point was any of this really handled in a smart manner from their part. I mean, it's just the whole thing was like sending emails to like the info box at certain airports to make it sound like there were multiple threats. And some of these were never opened because they were sent on the weekend. So there was nobody checking these email boxes. So can you imagine being a person like gets in, you know, on Monday morning and you're checking the spam folder of your press box and you're like, oh, here's a bomb threat. Yeah, it was due to go off last Saturday at noon. Wait a yeah. minute. Refresh my memory. Are airlines in Europe still avoiding Belarus at this point? I think yes. they are to a degree because I'm yes. looking at an Air Baltic flight that is going way out of its way to go between Riga and Kiev right now. So th- there are still yes. sanctions in place because of this event. Yeah, so most everybody's avoiding Belarus. There are basically cargo flights aren't including US cargo flights. And apparently Ural Airlines said, screw it, we're flying straight over. But yeah. (laughs) I mean, but they've never, Russian airlines have never been avoiding Belarus. But everybody west of there basically has. So yeah, this is an interesting one. I mean, these four people will never be tried in the, there's no way they're going to be extradited to the US. That's never going to happen. But it's interesting that the charging document lays out in detail what the US says was the the order of operations for forcibly diverting a flight that was just happened to be flying over your airspace. Brilliant. Still, I mean, just the whole thing is ridiculous. But we'll put a link in the show notes to the charging document because it is pretty detailed. A young man is either in the hospital or has recently been released from the hospital in the Netherlands and has requested asylum after stowing away inside of a Cargolux Italia 747's wheel well. And the flight was a two-part flight from South Africa to Nairobi to Amsterdam. Initially, they said that the person stowed away in South Africa, but the Dutch military police announced that the person was Kenyan and from Nairobi, a 22-year-old young man from from Nairobi. So I don't know if the first part was just bad information on their part, but it seems much more likely to me that he survived the much shorter flight from, I mean, not much shorter, it's still a five-hour flight, but less likely that anyone could survive going up, coming down, and going back up again, and also not being discovered because don't you think that the pilots would have seen someone hiding in the wheel well during their walk around? At least I hope they would have. I hope so. 
So it sounds like the, given the person's nationality and where the aircraft stopped before it arrived in Amsterdam, I'm wagering that they actually stowed away in Nairobi. This has happened at least twice so far this year, right? Uh, I don't know. Already this year? Yeah. I feel like there was one a couple weeks ago as well. I That one I missed. Oh. Don't do it. I mean, okay. I, I don't think anyone listening to the podcast would, would dare attempt such a thing, but just don't do it. Yeah, that's uh, definitely, definitely don't do it. What else should we talk about before taking a break? Shall we talk about something the beluga? Big, something big. Let's talk about the beluga. So this comes as, I don't think, any real surprise because it had been discussed previously, but now we know the actual plans. Given the introduction of the full fleet of or, or nearing full fleeting of the Beluga XL, Airbus has decided to turn the original Beluga fleet into large cargo freighter aircraft, bulk cargo or, or oversized cargo aircraft, which they had said they intended to do, but they're going to get their own airline. Yeah, uh, Airbus so, Beluga so that'd be Transport. Cool. So, I mean, they already fly under their own call sign. But it'll be interesting to see them split off and maybe they'll get a new call sign. And if they get a new call sign, I really want to know what the radio call sign would be. Hopefully something like something including the word whale has to. I was going to say, I, I mean, I hope it's like big whale. Yeah, big whale. But Airbus says these aircraft have 20 years of remaining life, which is a long time. So this makes sense for them to put it into uh, operation. They put a nice chart together of the fuselage dimensions, and it is bigger than a Dreamlifter C-17, a C-5, slightly smaller than a I actually, you know what? I, I'm not even going to say it's smaller than a 124-225 because the dimensions of this thing are just so weird. Very strange aircraft, but unlike the AN124-225, loading and unloading the Beluga is not going to be as seamless since this aircraft doesn't have – well, it was designed to carry airplane fuselages and wings, so there was special tooling and loading for that. So these aircraft don't have like a platform that will unfurl to let something like a truck or a train just kind of roll No, on. but they have something cooler. Tell me about what's cooler. So the thing that they have is basically a platform on stilts that comes out of the front of the aircraft, lowers down to the ground. You slide whatever you're going to – you ever watch like how a stretcher gets in and out of an ambulance? Delicate. How they have the, the – yeah, but they have the, like the telescoping legs mm -hmm. that they can control. It's basically like that. Well, that one is still under development. That one is maybe available by June of this year. Oddly, there are no – photos of that only renderings. And right now it's basically, uh, if you want to get on and off this aircraft, you will need a crane and a strategically placed platform at an airport near you, which they have designed. The first unit is available and they plan to place it at major ports that you would typically find uh, the need for something like this, like LA, Seattle, Cincinnati, I guess, Doha, Dubai, Beijing, Hong Kong, Singapore. Well, well, Cincinnati. What's in Cincinnati? A big hub for lots of cargo airplanes. Right. But what else is there that you would need an oversized aircraft for? Uh, tell me. Engines. That is true. Anyway, the problem with this is the loader has to be there already. You can't just fly this aircraft into anywhere and be able to get something on and off it. So it's definitely not as capable as other dedicated freighters like the, you know what? 
you can't even really call the 225 a dedicated freighter because that wasn't its intended purpose, right? Well, I mean, it's dedicated now. Now it is, but it wasn't originally. So those two were adapted, or that two, since there's only one. But it'll be interesting. They're going to ramp up to five of these in service by 2024. Yeah, the max payload is 40 tons. It's a lot of tons. So yeah, it, it's. I mean, basically, if you want something light but oversized, transported, this will be another option. Ketchup packets. Um, uh, I don't know if ketchup packets are light. I don't. I, I, we do have to go back to the archives and find out how much two hundred. No, because it was. I don't know if it was two hundred twenty-five tons or two hundred twenty-five thousand packets. We'll figure it out. But we'll go back to the archives. Put a link to that in the show notes because if anyone hasn't listened to that episode with Andrew, where we talked about all the crazy stuff that he has had to deal with working at a cargo airline, you definitely should. In the meantime, let's take a quick break and regroup from our ketchup packet excursion. And we'll come back. We'll talk about some fun stuff that's happening in Italy. We'll do some interesting financial announcements. And then we'll talk about something that Jason has done once that I have never done. And I am very jealous now. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And now it is time to talk about things that we just don't understand. Lufthansa Group wants a part of ITA Airways or ITA Airways. Or Alitalia if you check back in a couple months. <laughs> so I guess there's really two things going on here. One is, so ITA Airways bought the Alitalia brand for what, 90 million euros. We thought that was to spike the brand so that no one else could use it. Well, they said as much. They said they weren't going to use it. It turns out that they were going to use it. And it turns out that the guy running the airline says, oh, no, we were always going to use it, just not in it. We're going to use it and ITA Airways. So there's going to be ITA Airways. There's going to be Alitalia. Who knows what the difference between the two of them is going to be? And then here comes Lufthansa Group. Because remember, the chairman of ITA took out this newspaper ad in the German financial press, what, a couple months ago, saying, hey, please, please, please. And Lufthansa was like, well, okay, that that sounds good. I don't think that's exactly how it happened, but I choose to- We have no proof otherwise. Exactly. So Lufthansa has expressed interest. Lufthansa Group got together with MSC, which is a shipping conglomerate. They do cargo and cruise ships ships on the ocean. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay, fine. They're looking to take a majority stake in ITA, but they want the Italian government to also retain some ownership. So I don't know how this is going to work. And for these types of things, we always turn to our good friend, Brett Schneider over at Cranky Flyer. He, of course, came through in a big way and has a great post explaining why none of this makes any sense and why he really hopes it happens. Yeah. The part about how having an airline within an airline, you know, if you want to bring back the Alitalia brand as a sub-brand, doesn't make any damn sense because the whole point of these things, these sub-brands, especially like with Lufthansa where they have Eurowings and Eurowings Discover and all other variations of Eurowings, it's basically (laughs) to operate their own flights at lower costs without their own mainline pilots and crews, so they just they can lower the costs. But going bankrupt and, and 
hitting the restart button with ITA was supposed to have accomplished that. So it doesn't make any sense to operate Alitalia within ITA because they should have been starting from scratch at lower costs anyway, but they are still losing hundreds of millions of euros in just two and a half months. So pretty impressive. Yeah. The airline has been impressive thus far in all the wrong ways. But in all the expected ways. (laughs) Oh, I'm pulling for them. I really am. I hope they keep doing this forever. There you go. They they can't die. They'll just come back as an Alitalia Airways or something like that. Just combine the two. Call it done. Let's talk about some financial results from Boeing this week. Today, in fact, we learned things that generally are are of less interest to us as far as you know profit and loss and things like that but we got a little bit more meat about when to expect the 787 deliveries to resume and the answer was Jason I don't know <laughs> I mean interestingly Sadly, if you go back a few days and listen to American Airlines mm-hmm. investor briefing they were pretty confident that they'd start to see a trickle of 787 starting in April meanwhile a few days later Boeing comes out and says we have no freaking idea when we're going to be able to deliver these aircraft again and all what 100 of them that are in backlog that are parked are going to need rework of some sort so Americans should probably call Boeing Yeah, I mean, so here's the question that I think is interesting. Is it Boeing not wanting to step on the FAA's toes by saying, we think, because they've gotten dinged for this in the past, especially with the the MAX grounding? Is it Boeing not wanting to assume something and say something that is then incorrect? Or is it the case that American was very wrong and they're going to be sorely disappointed when they don't start to see 77 deliveries resume you know, in the first half of the year. I don't know. I don't think anyone know, knows. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just talking out loud here. But, but given yeah. the fact that they, this was an investor call, you would think they'd be a little more bullish that we're going to get these aircraft delivered soon. We have airlines that are ready, willing, and able to take them. But on this call, it seemed very much the opposite, that they Maybe they do know when they'll be able to deliver these aircraft again, but they sure are not willing to talk about it. Yeah. They also, Boeing, they also spent a whole bunch of money on what exactly? What exactly is a great question. They sunk $450 million into Whisk Arrow's Advanced Certified Autonomous Electric Vehicle. Yeah. I don't really know much about this because honestly, I had not even heard of this thing before the Boeing announcement. I think that goes to speak volumes about just how many freaking EV tolls and air taxis and things and and companies there are out there. It's an innumerable amount. I can't keep track of them. But apparently, Boeing has been keeping track of this one in particular and has secured a $450 million investment from Boeing, making it one of the most well-funded advanced air mobility companies in the world. But remember, other investments from Boeing have not gone great in terms of not autonomous flight, but let's say supersonic flight, I think. But this is apparently Whisk's sixth generation eVTOL aircraft. I don't know what happened for about one through five, but maybe it's like, you know, the Samsung Galaxy phones where they just skipped from like 11 to 20 or something like that. Maybe they just weren't any. But Boeing has been, when they were questioned in today's 
investor meeting about why they did this. Um, they seem to be very much aligned with the fact that they think their customers want autonomous flight in the future, that that is the wave of the future, and they want to get out ahead of it, but they just want someone else to build it. Yeah, we will give it money, but we are not going to do it. Yeah. Was basically the answer. I hope that isn't something that continues into the future because I would very much like to see Boeing produce another aircraft of its own. But so far, Boeing really only seems to be willing to make, in this case, a, a very large investment in a company to do the work. Also in kind of investment news today, Boom Arrow announced a hurts me to say don't this say loud. the name they, that they're marketing that just say a factory a factory they called it a super factory no oh, you, i had to say you it. didn't have to say it but you bought into i'm the just saying no i'm not i'm saying that's what they called it i'm not saying i think anyway greensboro north carolina this is where they are going to build the allegedly build i feel like they're actually going to build it i mean Okay, fine, whatever. They don't have an engine yet. They can't build anything without an engine. They can build as many fuselages as they can fit in the uh, factory, okay. my friend. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Uh, so they're going to build the Overture, which is the full-size boom thing that they're going <laughs> to build. Rollout is – and hold on. Hold your engine business for a second. Rollout is scheduled for 2025. The first flight is scheduled for 2026. It will fly passengers by 2029. Now, Jason, you're supposed to say – I mean, nobody believes this, right? I think they do. And the people that keep giving them money do. Who is giving them money? This timeline is just, I believe they can do it in a matter of time, but this timeline is ridiculous. It's invalidating. It's not possible. I mean, John Ostrower tweeted earlier that from the time that the Pratt & Whitney gear turbofan engine was first tested for the C-Series to the time it was actually in flight was, what, three years? And that's a, a relatively conventional aircraft. Here we're talking about something that's supposed to drive a flight supersonic speeds, and they're going to have their first flight in four years from now? It can't mm -hmm. happen. At some point, we're going to to reach critical mass of timeline crunch, where things begin to either impact the timeline and they they revise the timeline or they won't be taken seriously anymore. I mean, there are still enough people taking this seriously that it's of concern to me. Yeah. I mean, United has gone absolutely all in in marketing this thing. I just don't get it. I still- But anyone with money on the line has a way to get their money back as far as orders concerned. Like that's what gets me is like United's whole order thing was basically one giant asterisk. Well, and yeah. hey, we we got a we got a plane, maybe. But you know, it's got to meet these targets and all of these things. And you know, we've talked about Boom before and we'll put a link to the show notes about the conversation there. But I just again, like I would like to see some progress on the actual aircraft. Like, great, you have a factory, and that's important too. But yeah, I also just don't please see for the love of all that is holy, announce an engine. Yeah. Even if they do announce an engine tomorrow, I just don't see the regulatory environment being conducive to rolling this thing out or getting it in flight by 2026. I mean, just look no. at how long no. it took Boeing to recertify the MAX. And that was basically a software update to these aircraft. And that took years to do. They think they're going to get this aircraft, get an engine, build it, 
get it in the air, flight test it, and have it actually certified for passenger operations. It just it doesn't seem forget about technically possible. It doesn't seem regulatorily possible by their deadline. There are so many things working against it. And you know, and that's not even talking about the the SAF availability to run the whole thing. And so let's just leave the conversation there because we've we've talked about this. I wish them luck. I hope they do it, but we'll see. Well, let's hope the next time we talk about them, it's because they've announced an engine. Okay. Some good news and some interesting bits of news before we wrap up. Chinese 737 MAX test flights are occurring, which is a good sign here. Hainan and China Southern have both operated at least one test flight. I believe China Southern's done a couple already with 737 MAX aircraft. So hopefully things are continuing to move in the right direction. Boeing said today that they're ready to to begin deliveries to China, basically ASAP. So hopefully that's a good thing there. And then we also have yesterday, the first 737 MAX flight to Antarctica. Smart Wings brought down personnel and material to the Troll Research Station. So they brought, uh, let's see, OKSWB, a 737 MAX 8, flew down via Cape Town down to Troll Research Station, stayed for an hour or so, and then went back from whence it came. Yeah. So that's a, a cool at, little thing. At this we, point, we, we, should, some, some video. we should get a list of the aircraft types that have not visited Antarctica because it, it Ooh, seems like there are a lot of interesting types that have already made the trip. I mean, this year we've had the, what was it, the Finnair or no Air Belgium A340 300. Now we have a, our first 73 Max. Uh, has a Neo made the trip there yet? Oh, I don't think that's so. A good question. I don't know. That's a good question. Well, check one off for Boeing. All right. And then there's a thing that you did that I think I didn't. First of all, I didn't know that you could do this. Neither did I before yesterday. And now I'm kind of jealous. Tell the people what happened. Okay, I will tell the people what happened. So here in Brooklyn, out my window, I have a pretty decent view. And part of that view happens to be a very large, I think 500 foot tall radio tower on top of a tall building that I see. It's always out my window, always blinking. The FAA obstruction lights always blinking until a few days ago where it stopped blinking. And then it just kind of came back on, it was on, it was off, and then it just kind of disappeared for a good while. And I thought, huh, that's somewhat concerning because there are unfortunately a lot of low-flying helicopters in this part of town. We're also not that far away from the approach to LaGuardia. So I said, huh, that tower is owned by the city. Nobody's ever going to fix it. So I put the call out on Twitter to say, hey, what should I do here hypothetically if I see a radio tower with an obstruction beacon light that is not working, what do you do? And I got about 400 replies from people all in the radio and TV transmission business that gave me a link to an FAA page that put all the regulations in one place saying during the day it should blink and at night it should be solid red. And if it's not, call us immediately at this phone number. And that's exactly what I did at about 10 o'clock, I think on uh, Tuesday or Monday night, I called this number expecting maybe voicemail or a phone tree or something. And I called it. I pressed a few buttons to tell it which office it should call. And lo and behold, after one ring, somebody at night picked up the phone and said, hi. And I said, hey, uh, (laughs) I I want to report a thing. And they said, okay, what thing do you want to report? And I said, well, there's a radio tower with an obstruction light that's not working. 
And I had already the antenna register number pulled up. So I gave him the number and he said, oh, okay, what's your initials? What's the ASR, the registration number for the tower? And when do you expect it to be fixed? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm just a, a guy looking at the I'm window. I don't like that's not blinking. And he said, well, I can't issue the notum without an end date to it. And he said, well, let's just make something up like February 1st or the end of March. So I said, okay, let's just do April 1st, hypothetically. So now if you go to search for the notums, you can either look it up by the antenna registration number or you can look it up at KJRB, which is the downtown Manhattan heliport. You will see a notum issued by me via calling in the FAA that there is a radio tower with an obstruction light that is not working. How surprised do you think that guy was when the phone rang? You know what? He didn't seem surprised at all. It seemed like he's probably there on the graveyard shift answering the phone to do this all night. He knew exactly what to do. I didn't have to explain like, hey, there's a light blinking that's not blinking. I just told him what's up and he said, okay, what's the registration number? So he's definitely done this a million times. I mean, and I like that he assumed you were either from whoever owns the tower or the airport where the tower was located. Because how, like, first of all, the fact that you're a geek enough to know that their tower had, I didn't know towers have registration numbers, though that makes sense now that you say it out loud. But I didn't know that. I would have no idea how to even look that up. So congratulations for, you know, for going to that level. Thank you. I filed my first and I guess probably last ever notum. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank well you. done. There's also another thing that sounds pretty cool that you should tell people about because you sent me the trailer and I enjoyed it, although I I didn't really get much into it. So go for that. Yeah, you should definitely get the family to pick this up because it would waste a lot of time. But if anyone listening has ever played SimCity in the past, unfortunately a title that really hasn't done well in modern days after EA kind of killed the franchise. But Cities Skyline is a modern day version of SimCity, which is really, really robust. You can do a lot with it. You can add a lot of mods and go crazy with it. But they just released yesterday or Tuesday, as we're recording, an airport expansion pack. So basically, you can, in this version of the game, you can go out and build an airport. And it's really pretty fantastic. There are different terminals, different types of terminals, different size of terminals. You can build runways, taxiways, hangars, different size gates. So you can build a small gate or a, a super gate for an A380. There are different aircraft. And it gave me a kind of a newfound respect for airport planners on just how difficult it is to properly design and build not just like a good airport, but an efficient airport, one where aircraft aren't colliding into each other on taxiways because they're too close. <laughs> Turns out that that's a thing. That's um, a thing. That's a thing. But if you ever enjoyed playing city building games, highly, highly recommend City Skylines Airport Expansion Pack. Definitely worth every penny. It's a lot of fun. Very cool. Very cool. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm probably going to buy it and then never get to it and go, oh, right, I bought that in, in like 10 years and then not have somewhere to play it. But if you have the time and the inclination, go check that out. What a week. We started with a list and it was a long one. And 
I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I had a lot of fun working through it. And we will be back next week with another one. We've got a cool thing coming up in two weeks. I won't spoil the surprise, but it has something to do with, what's the word I'm looking for? Automation and virtualization. So that'll be fun to talk with some folks about. But until next week, I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening. 